today on Ag News Daily. So they've taken that into account. They said, okay, we're going to look at line nine of Schedule F, which is a gross income number, which is basically for a grain farmer, it's just your gross sales. And if that number, you know, if that number is at least $100,000. Good afternoon, Ag News Daily listeners. It's Ashton Carr, joined by Delaney Howell. And I always say, you know, ladies and gentlemen, so I tried to switch it up there, but I don't know if I like that. I kind of uh, feel awkward when I don't say ladies and gentlemen. You can say whatever you like, Ashton. Hey, don't don't give me that green light because <laughs> I've got some opinions that I don't always share on here that I might just have to start doing, I guess, if I can say anything. I mean, within reason, you, you can't go off and curse up a storm because we got a PG rated podcast here. <laughs> well, that's not really my style. Anyway, I like to keep things pretty professional. So I'll, I'll try my best not to at least go down that rabbit hole. All right. All right. Well, Delaney, how are things going with you on this Thursday afternoon? Mm, not not much uh, of anything new to report from a personal standpoint, just a news standpoint today, Ashton. So what do you say we kick off some news? Let's do it. What are you watching today? Well, a few things, really. One of which is the swine industry. China is still conducting some clinical trials on a vaccine to combat African swine fever, but they haven't really released a timeline yet on when that commercial production will begin. They say they still are thinking they're going to shoot for that June deadline to see their hog herd rebuilt. I personally question that, and I think a lot of others do as well especially because they don't have a commercial vaccine ready to be rolled out yet. But it does seem that we've seen some fresh outbreaks. Um, Their winter has been pretty bad this year, and that has added to the impetus to develop a vaccine to curb this disease. They said there's still a long way to go in terms of recovery, according to the head of their Swine Infectious Disease Center, Um, at Harbin Veterinary Research Institute in China. So I don't know. I think it's a little bit of fake news to say that China is going to be rebuilt here this year. But we'll see. We'll keep a close eye on it. Yeah, Delaney, I also have a hard time believing that they're going to really rebuild, you know, super... I guess I should say fast because I feel like it is pretty fast, especially like you said, since they don't even have a vaccine yet. So I'm kind of one of the disbelievers. I guess you can go ahead and label me. Yes, I agree, Ashton. But kind of in the same vein, talking about China, a big question mark has been what our relationship with China is going to be, or I should say our our trade relationship as we're seeing the new presidency take over. I mean, we just saw Vilsack get confirmed. So we're, you know, taking steps more and more each day. But trade has really been a a large question mark, like I said. And a University of Missouri Extension Research Associate, Ben Brown, expects President Joe Biden to adopt no more go-it-alone trade policies, but does not expect any new trade deals early on in his term. Brown said that the U.S. could eventually repartner with the members of the original Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is now the CPTPP. And he was quoted as saying that President Trump, on his third day of office, pulled us out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I think Biden could re-engage us in that. That's with several other Pacific Rim countries, 
the largest being Japan. Brown also said that the partnership allowed countries to remove tariffs for all buyers. And while the U.S. has struck individual deals with some of those countries, he expects Biden to have a more multilateral approach. And I I think we've talked about this before, because now that I say multilateral out loud, it makes a little bit more sense. But I mean, we still don't really know what Biden will do. But Brown does expect him to support bolstering reform from the World Trade Organization appellate body. Brown says he doesn't expect any new trade deals right away because Biden wants to focus on the domestic economy first, which, I mean, makes sense because we're still in the middle of a pandemic. A lot of industries are not even in the first steps to getting back up on their feet. But again, just going to be something that we have to continuously keep an eye out on because, you know, even though we are experiencing problems here domestically because of the pandemic, I think trade relationships is going to be a big step moving forward. Yeah, absolutely, Ashton. And speaking of Vilsack's uh, nomination confirmation, he did officially take an oath last night with Vice President Harris in a virtual ceremony. And shortly afterward, the USDA put out a statement talking a little bit more about their next steps for the coronavirus food assistance program. We saw that, of course, the additional assistance passed in December by Congress, but the Biden administration froze those $20 per acre payments for row crop farmers and the additional assistance for livestock farmers very shortly after taking office. Now it says, now according to the USDA, it appears that a decision will be released soon here within the next few weeks about whether or not that program will continue for farmers. And they say they're going to have a decision in the weeks ahead. So we will continue to watch that. I think that's very timely because we're also talking today about the PPP or Paycheck Protection Program, which obviously has been another um, resource for farmers this year, struggling with some challenging markets. But we don't have any clarity quite yet on CFAP. Delaney, when was the last time, I don't even know if you remember this, because I feel like it's been so long since payments have actually been able to roll out. But, you know, when was the last time that, payments did roll out when farmers actually got some assistance. Do you know? Well, I'm a little fuzzy on the timeline, to be honest, Ashton, because it was passed in December by Congress. So before the new administration obviously took office, I don't know, to be honest, if payments were released pre-Biden administration stepping in in January for those first couple of weeks, or if there wasn't enough time to turn those payments around. So to be honest, I'm going to rely on our farmers and listeners to tell us if they were able to get those latest rounds, if those started to trickle out or not, because I am not entirely sure. I feel like it's probably mixed bag for some folks. Maybe some got them and some didn't, if I had to speculate. Well, hopefully we can get some answers. It's kind of a a neat relationship, I guess. We have questions and the audience answers. The audience has questions we answer. I kind of like that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely, Ashton. Well, Delaney, I just have one other piece of news today, and I thought it was quite interesting to say the least because I hadn't heard about this until today. A shipload of Spanish cattle that had been drifting for months due to concerns over the bovine blue tongue disease, which I hadn't heard of. Have you? No, I haven't. Right. See, I thought it was pretty interesting, too. But from the looks of it, Wikipedia, I know it's not a super reliable source, but just taking a quick look at it, it's a non-contagious insect-borne disease. And it's in ruminants. And I, I think that it's more specifically more, I guess, popular in deer and sheep. But either way, the ship docked in Spain on Thursday, earlier today, 
but the fate of the animals remains uncertain. The Kareem Allah left the Mediterranean port of Cartagena on December 17th, which feels like so, so long ago, carrying 895 head of cattle that was destined for sale in Turkey. On a second ship, the Elbeck, that that ship set sail the next day, so December 18th, from Tarragona with a cargo of nearly 1,800 cows. And even though the cattle had been clean from from the vets and cleared to to travel, according to Spain's government, Turkish authorities rejected both ships and suspended live animal imports from Spain after an outbreak of blue tongue disease was detected in a different province of Spain. And the Kareem Allah tried to find another buyer in Libya, but was rejected by authorities there and spent weeks drifting through the eastern Mediterranean, struggling to find supplies. So the ships had ran out of food and the animals, the cows, they spent several days with just water. And um, I, I don't know that I could take the smell of being on a cattle ship for months at a time at sea. I mean, the sea smell mixed with the cattle smell, I don't think it uh, was a good situation at all. But the ship has now docked, and the agriculture ministry said that specialists have boarded to test the animals. And if the cattle are cleared, they don't have this disease. They can be resold for live export. But if they are soldered on landing on government orders, they cannot be sold for food, and the shipment would have to be written off. And so this has caused some pretty harsh tensions, I would say, between Spain and Turkey. Um, I'm curious to see how this kind of trade relationship might play out because on Spain's side, I uh, get the feeling from the rest of this article that they are not exactly happy. And you know what? I don't think I would be either if, you know, these cattle were just on a ship in the sea for months at a time, but pretty unfortunate situation. Yeah, it certainly is, Ashton. It certainly is. Uh, I think I have just one other piece of news here talking about livestock. Actually, a little bit different tracks here, but the largest protein and livestock uh, harvesting company, JBS South America, said they're going to start their own plant-based protein-focused company, according to their CEO. He told Bloomberg earlier this week he believes that meat from animals will likely be a pricey luxury in the future. I'm not sure I agree with that statement, but he said that uh, demand for cheap vegetable-derived alternatives is likely going to drive the marketplace. And he also said, coupled with the estimates that the world's population is going to be over 10 billion folks by 2050, many experts anticipate that the animal protein industry won't be able to keep up with the global protein needs. And for that reason, JBS is going to be diving into creating a second entity, if you will, that will be focused primarily on plant-based or alternative meat products. I think that's incredibly interesting. I mean, I, I'm excited, I guess, to see, you know, what this new entity does, how it um, succeeds, I should say. But, you know, I got to say, I, I shouldn't say that I'm excited because, I mean, I'm not a um, meat alternative person. I will stick to, to eating meat, but excited to see how that goes for JBS. Yeah, I think um, it's a little concerning to me being a obviously protein supporter or protein eater. But I think they raise a good point, you know, feeding that many people, it maybe isn't quite as sustainable or even possible to have 
protein produced for that many folks, animal protein produced for that many folks, I should say. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops. I don't think that's going to be changing or getting rid of animal protein markets anytime soon. And I don't think that they're going to ever completely go away, but it does offer consumers more options and options are always good. So Ashton, I am out of news for today. What do you say we talk markets? Let's do it. Well, markets today, soybeans took it pretty heavily on the chin today, as well as really all the other grain markets. Uh, We saw sales of soybeans fall about 230. 39,000 tons. Export sales numbers, I should say, dropped pretty significantly, far shorter than the average estimate coming out from analysts. And that really weighed on today's soybean markets, which I think pulled wheat and corn down with it. Kicking things off here, let's start with soybeans. As the March contract today shed 17 and three quarter cents to close at 14.06, the May down 18 and a quarter to close at 14.07. In corn markets today, the March contract shed four and a half cents to end at 5.54 and three quarters the May down seven and a quarter to close at 549 and three quarters. Chicago wheat today, eight and a half cents lower in the March contract to close at 671 and three quarters. The the May down nine and three quarters cents to close at 675 and three quarters. And hopping over to take a look at the livestock markets today. Mixed trade in the cattle complex as the April live cattle contract shed 55 cents to close at 121.67 and a half. The June down 60 cents to close at 119.50. And in feeder cattle, March today, up a nickel to close at 140.42. The April, up 32.5 cents to close at 145.07. Lean hogs also had mixed trade today as the April contract added 32.5 cents to close at 89.75. The May, down slightly 40 cents to close at 91.15. And taking a look at the Class 3 dairy milk futures. March up 60 cents today to close at 16.63. The April up 75 to close at 17.40. Ashton, without further ado, let's kick it over to my conversation with Glenn Birnbaum to talk about the PPP program. Well, I am very excited today to be joined once again by Glenn Birnbaum, who is a partner with Sickitch. Glenn, it's been a little while since we've had you on, but we're certainly excited to have you back on again today. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you. Glad to be on, Delaney. Glenn, you're kind of uh, well-known in the industry as being a tax guy or being able to answer questions revolving around tax implications and whatnot. And so we wanted to bring you back on today to talk a little bit more about the PPP or the Paycheck Protection Program, because I think there are still some misconceptions in the ag industry about whether or not farmers should be applying for this, what kind of the long-term tax implications are. So let's hopefully put to bed some of those uh, assumptions. Glenn, let's just kick things off here first. You know, when you look at the PPP, should farmers be applying for it this round? Well, yeah, you know, I certainly think they should, you know, if they meet the qualifications. And, you know, one of the big changes, Delaney, is that um, instead of having to have net profit on your Schedule F, um, which was the rule last year, you know, in other words, if you had a loss on your Schedule F net profit, you weren't eligible, eligible for this PPP. Well, now with this bill that was passed in December, you know, they've changed the rules and basically you are going to be eligible for PPP. You can get a PPP loan. So that's that's the biggest thing that we want to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And so to clarify as well, I think some people think if they didn't apply for the first round or they weren't eligible for the first round, they shouldn't be applying for this current round going on. And that's simply not the case. Is that right? 
Correct. Yeah. So they've really reopened up the original PPP program. You know, the, some people are called the first draw or PPP one, but yeah, it is open back up. So just because you didn't apply in the first case or you weren't eligible in the first case doesn't mean you can't apply now. So Glenn, walk us through a little bit more what you're mentioning there on the schedule F. If you yeah. show a loss, you can still apply. Yep. So before it was, you know, line 34 on schedule F, that's your net profit. And, you know, if you had a loss, um, you weren't eligible. And because that was kind of what they thought was like owner's compensation. That's how much money you made. Well, they kind of said, well, let's relook at this. And, you know, because of the way farmers trade equipment and you could have a sizable gain that's not on your Schedule F. It's, it's on what's called a Form 4797 that you basically could have taxable income on your return, but not taxable income on Schedule F due to this this one of these rule changes that happened a couple of years ago. So they've taken that into account. They said, okay, we're going to look at line nine of Schedule F, which is a gross income number, which is basically for a grain farmer, it's, it's just your gross sales. And if that number, you know, if that number is at least $100,000, and I'm talking about, let's say somebody that doesn't have any employees, you know, if that gross income number is $100,000, a farmer could get a loan for a little over $20,000 because that's the maximum loan. So it's a big deal. And so for those guys that do have employees or maybe pay themselves a wage, how does the PPP loan amount differ for them? Yeah, that's where it gets a little tricky. So, you know, so this, this special rule, I guess I should say, is just for a Schedule F farmer, just for somebody that is a sole proprietor. So this rule does not apply for somebody that's in a partnership with, you know, maybe a few other people. And they there is maybe a Schedule F file, but this is only for a Schedule F sole proprietor. So, so Delaney, on your question, then, you know, you would not be paying yourself any wages because you can't. But if you had other employees, then you get to tack that on as well. And, you know, maybe maybe the farmer already got a PPP loan based on, you know, pay, having some payroll, but they couldn't get a PPP loan last year on their own income because they didn't have any net profit on Schedule F. Absolutely. I'm glad you cleared that up for us. And I think the other question that probably needs to be cleared up a little bit more, Glenn, is what expenses or costs that you can deduct besides your payroll? Because I think a lot of farmers in the first round thought, oh, I don't pay myself. I don't have any employees. I can't apply. But there's other expenses you can deduct from that. Is that right? That's correct. I mean, there's, you know, the rent, the utilities and the interest. Those were the the other three in the first round. Um, now, they've, they've expanded that to include a few other things um, like, you know, if you had personal protective equipment or something, but not really extremely relevant for farmers. But I guess the big the big takeaway, though, for a farmer is if you're just getting it based on your, you know, your Schedule F you know, income, you don't really have to spend the money. I mean, you don't because it's just automatically considered forgiven. Um, now, but for your employees, back to your question, if, if you got your PPP you know, just based on your employees, yeah, you can use that money, even though the weird thing is, even though the loan is you get the loan based on your payroll cost. You know, that's a formula. It's two and a half months. But you can spend the money on other things than payroll, like, you know, rent. So obviously cash rent would be a big one. Utilities and interest. So, um, yeah, it is a little confusing. But in, in almost all cases, you know, people are going to get the loan forgiven because they expanded this this time period you know, that you had to spend the money to 24 weeks. I mean, it's, it's a lot longer than it was originally gonna be. So, you know, in almost all cases, we're seeing the loan being 100% forgiven.
So do farmers or folks that have applied and received the PPP have to do anything special to prove that they've used the money where it should be used to make sure they do get that forgiven? Is there anything extra they have to do here? Well, yeah, there's different rules based on the size of your loan. You know, if you're under um, $150,000 loan, there's some easier processes, um, you know, that you don't have to submit as much documentation. Um, But for somebody that's really just getting their PPP loan, you know, based on their schedule of, you know, income, now it's going to be gross income. The rules are very, you know, very relaxed um, because it's pretty much just considered kind of automatically uh, forgiven. Um, because, you know, again, farmers aren't, you know, you're not paying yourself a wage directly. So it's it's a little more uh, flexible in, in the proof on that. But Delaney, these rules are changing, you know, all the time. And ultimately, you know, you've got to talk to your banker, your lender and, you know, make sure you understand how their portal works, because different banks can have some different rules on what actually needs to be submitted to support the forgiveness. Yeah, absolutely. I've applied for it and have seen some different documents than uh, what I've seen farmers had to supply. But that leads me to another question, Glenn. You know, I think it's not uncommon for farmers to have maybe their farm entity, but also another business on the side. Maybe they're selling seed. Maybe they're doing some custom application work for folks. Is it okay for if you own more than one business or you have a farm and another business entity, can you apply for two PPP loans? Well, you've, there's what's called, uh, it's a good question, there's what's called affiliation rules. And, you know, if, if, if there's kind of the, the common ownership and things, you would you would treat it as one, you know, kind of employer um, and kind of combine everything together. Although we've certainly seen some exceptions of that with different banks, you know, maybe requiring um, a separate loan. But I think in general, the, the best practice would be you know, a combined loan and, and making sure that, um, you know, you're talking with your bank. But a Schedule F is different than, you know, like a Schedule C. So if you're talking about selling seed, that's a Schedule C taxpayer. And um, there's, you know, there's this different set of rules. This The Schedule C rules are unchanged. Um, you know, what was passed in December was just for Schedule F, that gross income rule. All right. Glenn, I think just a couple of other quick questions here. When you look at tax implications, you know, we saw commodities really rally here in the second part of 2020 heading into 2021. So I know a lot of guys are dealing with maybe a little bit more income than what they were originally expecting for last year. Are there any implications of taking this PPP loan? Are they going to be forgiven, you know, or are they going to count as income against um, what they already made for the year? So yeah, this was quite the roller coaster last year about whether the PPP money would be taxable. Um, but it ended up, you know, they clarified this, um, you know, with the bill that was signed in December that the PPP money, you know, is not going to be taxable. So it's, in other words, it's not going to be considered taxable income. Um, it's the expenses that you pay with the money; those are going to be deductible. So there's no like kind of backdoor way to make it taxable. So yeah, as of right now, unless the law changes, which I don't think it will, the PPP money is tax-free, which is a nice benefit. So Glenn, is there really any reason for folks not to apply for the PPP loan? Is there any hesitations that people have had? Well, I mean, there is this economic necessity certification, you know, whether, you know, um, do, do you do you have the need for the money, you know, to support your operations? Now, if, if the loan is under $2 million, you know, uh, which is a big number, obviously, you know, you're kind of assumed to be, you know, in good faith. And so that certification isn't, isn't quite as critical. Um, 
but that's that's the main thing. Now, if we're talking about the second draw PPP, which we haven't talked about that, you know, that's that's where you need that 25% drop in your quarterly revenues. But but the first draw, it's primarily just that certification um, criteria. Tell me a little bit more about the second draw for the PPP. Yeah, so the second draw would be, and this is again part of the December bill that was passed, is they said, well, we'll let you have another bite at the apple, uh, you know, get a get another round of PPP loans if you can show that your quarterly revenues, you know, you're looking at a particular quarter in 2020 as compared to 2019. So your gross sales, you know, if that was down 25% or more, then you'd be eligible for this second round of PPP. You could get another bite at the apple. But they have they would have had to apply for the first round in that instance. Correct. Yep, that's true. So yeah, that's only if you've uh, haven't applied or you know, had applied in the first round. Sorry. Um, and so right now it'd be kind of tough to like you know if you haven't applied you know hey first round you apply for the PPP then we believe you've got to let at least eight weeks pass. Um, but then it'd be beyond this March thirty first deadline to apply for either first draw or second draw PPP. So time is you know it is starting to run out here. Yeah, just a, just over a little bit of a month away. But Glenn, one final question for you. Looking into the future here, we've obviously started a new administration. Do you think that there will be any continue a doled out under the Biden administration? Well, it remains to be seen, but I, I, I certainly you know think it's reasonably possible. Um, but there's just a lot of you know a lot of new things hitting. Uh, I mean, one thing as an example, just a few days ago, um, and we've not actually seen concrete guidance on this, but um, Schedule C taxpayers now, if they haven't applied for PPP, so I'm not talking Schedule F, but Schedule C taxpayers apparently can now use this gross income rule. But it was just announced a couple days ago, and there's absolutely no clarity on how this works, and the banks that I've talked to, you know, don't know how it works either. So. I mean, things can change on a dime, but that is one thing that the Biden administration was trying to do was to, you know, make that apply in that case to that, you know, seed salesman as well if they had a net loss. So it's it's hard to predict, but that's just one example of how quickly things are changing. Absolutely. Glenn, I lied. I have one other question for you. With things changing so quickly like this, are there any resources out there or ways that farmers can stay in tune with the ever changing uh, things that are thrown at us? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of the land grant universities, you know, have pretty good, you know, tax tax websites and things. And obviously at our, at our firm at Sickich, you know, we try to keep up on things too. If you go to sickich.com, S-I-K-I-C-H.com, but, but it's hard. And, you know, we're, we're coming up on this March 1st deadline, you know, if farmers haven't made any quarterly estimates, you know, the, their tax return is due March 1st. And, um, in some cases, you know, the software is not ready. And, and so we're not sure if we can even get these returns out on time um, because the rules are changing so fast. So I think you've got to really try to rely on others to help to help out because it's, it's very difficult to stay on top of this stuff uh, on your own. Yeah, it certainly is. Well, Glenn, thank you so much for joining again today. We certainly appreciate you adding some clarity to the PPP loans. You're welcome, Delaney. Thank you. Well, again, a big thank you there to Glenn for coming on and chatting with us today. Great to have a little bit more clarity, I think, around the Paycheck Protection Program. And folks, your time to register for that is quickly dwindling. So be sure to get on that ball if uh, that's something that you're interested in pursuing.
Delaney, I was sad to leave you to do that interview alone, but I got to say you were probably better off without me because I don't know too much about PPP. So I'm glad that I was able to learn a little bit more and folks, I'm learning just right along with you. So if you want to go back and learn anything that we have talked about on the podcast, you can do so at agnewsdaily.com and follow along with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram while you're at it at agnewsdaily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let him go.